I want to tell you uh, this afternoon about uh, the most powerful prayer that I ever prayed. Six simple words. But before I tell you what that prayer was, um, maybe it'd be helpful for you to hear a little of my background. I was um, born and raised in Canada, the son of a pastor. I came to faith in uh, Jesus Christ at the age of six one Sunday evening in response to a message my dad gave on the gospel. And I remember very clearly putting my hand up that I wanted to trust Jesus. And I did that evening at the age of six. Now, I know some people find that hard to imagine. How could a six-year-old possibly comprehend something so deep as the truths of God? But if you know the gospel, you know that it's the same message that a six-year-old or a 60-year-old has to believe. And I understood very simply that God was a holy God and I was not holy, that I had done many things to offend him even as a six-year-old child, but that Jesus Christ came, died for my sins, came back to life the third day, and that through faith in him, I could have that relationship with God. So I did at the age of six. And uh, when I was 18 years of age, I decided that I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps and become a pastor in Canada. Um, I honestly did not uh, have any interest in missions. I didn't want to be a missionary. I had a very low view of missions and of missionaries. I thought missionaries were the pastors who couldn't really cut it in uh, the home country, so you sent them abroad where they would do less harm. And so I just wanted to be a pastor. But it was when I was in seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, that um, God got my attention uh, when one of my teachers began, uh, challenged me to begin praying this simple six-word prayer. And uh, I know that um, most of you know that prayer. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 9, and I'm just going to read the context of the prayer and then those six words. It's in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is looking out over the vast harvest, and um, it says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he may, and here's the prayer, send out workers into his harvest. Send out workers into your harvest. And this teacher said, you need to start praying that prayer. That is the answer to the vast harvest and the lack of workers. So I began praying that prayer. Jesus actually explained the reason why we needed to pray it. And he said, it's because the harvest is so vast and the number of workers are so few. Now, they tell us, and I don't know how, who they is or how they know this, but they tell us that back in the day when Jesus made that statement, the population of the world probably stood at around 138 million people. Do you know how many people are added to the world's population every year? How many are born into the world today? Interestingly, it's 138 million, give or take a few. So today, every year, we add as many people to the world as lived when Jesus actually said that the harvest was plentiful and the laborers were few. So if the harvest was huge then, how much huger is it today? Seven billion people on planet Earth today, and as I shared earlier this morning, 
roughly 2.8 billion of them have never even heard of Jesus, never had the opportunity to encounter the gospel. And they tell us that in the next 15 years, another 2 billion people will be added to the world's population. Now, a billion is a big number. We, we, I think, maybe don't think it's so big anymore because we talk about trillion-dollar debts, but a billion is a huge number. Do you realize that from the time Jesus Christ rose from the dead until today, barely one billion minutes have gone by. So a billion's a huge number, and there are 2.8 billion people in the world who have never once heard there are another two billion coming to the world's population, many of them in those parts of the world where people have not heard the gospel. A friend of mine was traveling in Delhi a while back. Uh, Delhi is um, a city of 22 million people, the fourth largest city in the world. And he was riding in the, in the front seat of a taxi and he um, decided to engage in a conversation with a taxi driver. Taxi driver had these little idols lined up all across his dashboard. So my friend John said, uh, you know, what, what's that one there for? And he said, oh, that's the God that protects me. And he said, what about that one there? And he said, oh, oh, that's, that's the God that gives me health. And, and John said, what about that one there? And he said, oh, that's the God of prosperity. He said, he's useless. He never does anything for me. That's what he said. And so John continued the conversation on for a little bit. And then he looked at the driver and he said, um, have you ever heard of a guru, a, a spiritual leader by the name of Jesus? The taxi driver looked at him and he said, um, no. He said, you've never heard of Jesus Christ. The man had never heard of him. Here is a man living in the fourth most populous city in the world, 2,000 years after Jesus told us to pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, and he had never heard. So... Back in 1985, when I was halfway through seminary, I began to pray that prayer. Send out workers into your harvest. Lord, send out workers into your harvest. And I began to research the needs of the world, and God changed my heart. From one who said, I'm not interested, I'm not willing, I'm not planning, to one who said, I'm not only willing, but I'm planning. I graduated from seminary in 1987. We moved to Grenoble, France, uh, my wife and I and our one child at the time in 1988 to help make disciples in a suburb of a city called Grenoble. That was um, almost 30 years ago today, and I can tell you missions has not ruined my life like I thought it would. It has enriched my life in more ways that I, than I could tell you today. And it all started for me by praying that little six-word prayer that I'm going to challenge you to pray before we leave today. But now I'd like to fast forward to the year 2008. My uh, oldest son, Joel, had just graduated from university with a degree in international business, and I had just been named the, the president of Crossworld, and I was having a discussion one day with Joel about what he wanted to do with his life. And he said, Dad, I want to impact the world. I just don't want to do it your way. And what he meant by that was the missionary way. Now, at the time, I'm not sure that I was listening. I, after all, Joel was young and idealistic. I was realistic. Uh, he hadn't even landed his first real job yet. I had just been named the president of this great commission ministry. And I think that in my mind, I thought that Joel would learn soon enough 
that the well-worn tracks of the modern-day missionary movement, carved into the soil by godly men and women for the past 200 years, were tried and true, and that they would work for my son as well. Now, you need to understand, I wasn't threatened or, or insulted by what my son said to me. He has great respect for my call uh, as a minister of the gospel, but I was frustrated, not by him, as much as by my own inability as the leader of a great commission ministry to offer a pathway to people like my son, other than to say, well, if you really want to impact the world, you need to leave behind your, your career and you need to go back to school and you need to get a real full-fledged ministry degree like me. And then you, if you become a real full-time, fully supported, full-fledged missionary, you can go and do it. So I and my leadership team at that time in 2008 began to take another look at that commission that we know as the Great Commission and at the world that we live in today and at what it seemed we need to do to be relevant with the gospel in a world that is changing so rapidly. And we discovered a couple things that we felt like we had been looking at but not really seeing. We discovered, for example, that the biblical mandate that was given to us used terms like disciple-making, not the terms that we tend to use like church planting. Now, we understood that those are not two separate things. I believe disciple-making and church planting are part of the same continuum, but you start where Jesus told you to start. He, said, he didn't say go and plant churches. He said go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. And that disciple making is to church planting what the development of a new human embryo is, uh, what the multiplication of cells of an embryo is to the development of a new, of a new human being. Why, when, when that little cell gets fertilized, what does it do? It starts to multiply two, then four, then eight, 16, 32, 64. It, for what purpose? To have billions of free-floating cells? No, for one purpose, for the creation of a new human body. And so disciple-making is the same, but we discovered that Jesus called us to be disciple-makers. Make disciples to be the church, not converts simply to fill a church. Not only did we discover that, we discovered that the mandate was given to the whole body of Christ not just to people like me. That we were called to make disciple makers. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, all nations, and teach them to obey everything I commanded you, which I think would include the very thing he had commanded them at that moment, right? To go and make disciples of all nations and teach them, to go and make disciples of all nations and teach them, to go and make disciples all the way down to today. To give you the short version, we became very convicted that we and many other like us in the church and in mission organizations in the West have been marginalizing the vast majority of the body of Christ, like I said this morning, basically saying you can give us your money, you can pray, but leave the real missionary work to us professionals. Not only did we discover those two embarrassingly obvious things that we had been looking at but not really seeing, but we also discovered that that's exactly what is needed in the world today. I already told you, 4.2 billion people in the world, 60% of the world, live in places where you cannot get a missionary visa, where people like me cannot go, 
but where because of this global thirst for economic development and business and English, the doors are often wide open to the rest of the body of Christ. We cannot reach the world in our lifetime or anybody else's lifetime if we do not engage the whole body of Christ to do it. Moreover, you cannot do it by addition. Jesus said it'll only happen by multiplication. I like to illustrate the, the, the difference between those two, between someone who goes and makes converts and fills a church to someone who goes and makes one disciple, who in turn can make one disciple, who in turn make one disciple. And I, when I'm talking to students, uh, I'll often say, would you rather me give you um, $1,000 a day for the next 30 days, 1,000 plus 1,000 plus 1,000 for 30 days, or a dollar each day doubled? So a dollar the first day, two the second, four the third for 30 days. Now, you don't have to be real quick at math. They know there's probably something to this. I'll go, um, I'll take the dollar doubled. I'll say, okay, I'll make it easy for you. Would you rather have me give you $100,000 each day, $100,000 plus $100,000 plus $100,000 for 30 days, or $1 doubled each day for the next 30? And they'll go, I'll take the dollar doubled. I'll say, okay, I'll make it real easy. Would you rather I gave you a million dollars each day, one million plus one million plus one million for 30 days, or one dollar doubled? And they'll go, I'll take the million. I'll say, you know, you, you'd come out pretty good. At the end of 30 days, you'd have how much? $30 million. But you know that if you chose the addition, one uh, million plus a million plus a million, at the end of 30 days, you would come out $970 million short than if you had taken the dollar a day doubled. And just on the 30th day, I would have given you $1 billion just on day 30. On the 29th day, I would have given you half a billion dollars. On the 28th day, a quarter of a billion. So not only would you be $1 billion, uh, $970 million short, that's just but what you'd be short on day 30. You see, that's the power of multiplication. It doesn't look very good in the short run. You know, the guy who says, I'll take the million every day, at the end of two weeks, he's got like $14 million, and the guy who takes a dollar doubled got, has like, you know, 512 bucks or 1,024 or something like that. Doesn't look very good in the short run, which I think is why we don't do it. Because it looks much better, especially on people like me, if I can fill a building with 200 people in the short run. But I tell our workers in Crossworld, I would rather you come back at the end of four years with two or three disciples who are starting to learn how to reproduce the life of Christ in somebody else than with pictures of you in your little street front building and 100 converts who sit there and listen to you teach but do not know how to reproduce the life of Christ in another human being. That is the power of multiplication. Do you realize that if just one follower of Jesus, anywhere in the world, I'm not talking about all of you doing it. I'm not talking about all 30 million evangelical Christians in America doing it. I'm not talking about all three, 300 cross-world missionaries. I'm just saying if there was one, anywhere in the world, who would, who would say to the Lord, God, would you give me one disciple this year? And what if in response to their prayers and the, the, their prayers and, and the witness of their life and their words, God should graciously respond and give them one? Well, then there'd be two. And what if in that second year, those two said, God, would you give us each one new disciple? And what if again, in response to the witness of their words and life, God graciously respond, gave them each one? Well, then there'd be four. 
And what if in that third year, those four together, as they continued to pour into each other's lives, said, God, give us each one new disciple. Well, do you realize that in 33 short years, there would be potentially 8 billion followers of Jesus, more than the population of the world today. Folks, we've been about doing this thing for 2,000 years. Something is perhaps missing. And so we woke up to what we felt was a wake-up call from God that we needed to get back to do what Jesus told us to do. To work to make sure that the people that we're investing our lives in are learning to obey all things that Jesus commanded, which would include that very important thing that he was commanding right there, and to engage the whole body of Christ. And for me, it all started with that one little six-word word, six-word prayer. Send out workers into your harvest. But before I conclude today, I want to ask you, do you really believe what Jesus said? Someone has written and said, if I wish to ask any, if I wish to humble anyone, I would question him about his prayers. Well, I don't wish to humble any of you this, this afternoon. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I, would, I, I think I would be embarrassed in any church, pretty much any church, to ask how many of us in the last week have prayed that six-word prayer or anything that resembles it. Even in the last month. We say we believe it. We say we believe that the answer to this vast world of unreached people is what Jesus said. So pray the Lord of the harvest. But I I don't really think we believe it. I was convicted of this uh, about two years ago that although way back in seminary I had started doing that, praying the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, that I had long since quit. I mean, I, I pray it sometimes. I mean, I'm the leader of a great commission ministry, right? Shouldn't I be praying that? So I pray it sometimes. But I, I became convicted that I didn't even really understand what that verse meant because Jesus didn't tell us that the answer to this vast harvest is to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. What did he say? He said, well, you say he said, pray the Lord of the harvest. Okay, he didn't say ask, he said pray. Well, actually, that word that we translate in English, pray, is really not the word for prayer. There's, a, there's, there's, there's another word for prayer, but the word that he uses there is only used 22 times in the New Testament, and it means to beg, to implore, or to plead. It wasn't the word, so let's pray. It was beg, implore, plead the Lord of the harvest that he sent out workers. For example, it was a word that was used to describe the man who was covered in leprosy in Luke chapter 5. He came up to Jesus, he fell down before him, and he begged him to heal him. Now, leprosy was like, you know, modern-day cancer, okay? It was like, if you, if you get the L word, you're finished. Have you ever begged God for workers like a person would beg God to heal them of cancer? That's the same word. Or it's the word that was used of the demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus showed up on the scene. You remember him? He had so many, they called him legion. They said nobody could control, and they would try and bind him with chains. He'd break them off. Uh, He was totally out of control, but when Jesus showed up on the scene, it says he saw Jesus from a distance. He ran up to him. He fell down on his face, and it says he cried out at the top of his voice. He He didn't just ask. He cried out at the top of his voice, and he said, I 
beg you, don't torture me. Have you ever, have I ever asked God for harvest workers like a man would beg his ISIS captors to not torture him again? That's the word Jesus used here for what we're supposed to do in response to the harvest. To beg, to plead, to, pl- to, to, to beg, to plead or implore the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest. What will it take for us to get serious about this thing? You know, this morning I, I, I talked about some of the ways that God can use our professions all over the world. And I, I'm tempted to say, you know, the, the, the greatest thing this church could do would be to... To, to ask God to, to give you that 10%, that, that tithe of your people, to send those people out into the harvest. But I, I think the greater thing is to ask God to make you a bunch of beggars. Because Jesus didn't say, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, therefore get out there. He said, therefore pray that I will get them out there. Because it's really hard to get them out. I've tried to get serious about this thing of begging God for harvest workers, and it lasts for a little while, but it doesn't last for long in my own strength. There's a guy by the name of Neil Cole who has written several good books on disciple-making, and in his book, Search and Rescue, he suggests this uh, idea of taking Matthew 9:38, or it's also recorded the same story in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, and he says, set your watch for 10.02 every day to remind you of that verse. Beg the Lord of the harvest, send out workers. Set your alarm on your watch for 10.02 every day. And if you have not already prayed that day that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers, when that thing goes off, stop right where you are and pray. I tried doing that. Guess what? It doesn't work. Because I can't hear my alarm anymore. It's too high pitched. So I'll be sitting there in a meeting, and this has happened so many times. I'll be sitting there in a meeting, and all of a sudden people will be going, Whose is that? And I'll be, I'll be looking at them going, whose is what? Oh, you know, or I'll be sitting in a meeting and my wife will slap her arm over my wrist. My watch is, uh, I broke my band last week, so I don't have my watch today. It doesn't work. So it just, it, it, it's, a, it's a good reminder to me that it doesn't matter how hard I try, unless God turns me into a beggar for the harvest, Unless the Spirit of God gives me that impulse and teaches me daily to be begging him for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in my own strength, I can't do it. I would suggest that the most important thing you could do as a result of this weekend that we spend together is to turn, to ask God to turn you into a beggar for the nations. Because when you begin to beg God for workers, he does something in your own heart. It doesn't necessarily mean he does what he did to me and send you to the nations, but he does something in your own heart. So this is what I'd like to challenge you to do in closing today. Couple simple things. Number one, maybe you need a little reminder, a little kick in the pants to do it. So set your alarm. If you don't have good hearing like me, then set it on your phone. Uh, and make, make sure it rings louder. But set your alarm for Matthew 9.38, 9.38 or 10.02. If you're a night person, you want to set it for 9.38 at night because that's a better time, fine. But set your alarm and commit yourself every day to, first of all, say, God, make me a beggar. Make me a beggar. Give me a heart for the nations. And then to take a minute or two to pray for the nations. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, the second thing I'd encourage, I'd urge you to do is if you do not have a copy of the book, Operation World, 
you got to get yourself a copy. Go on Amazon, buy a copy of Operation World. You can get it electronically and load it on your computer, put it on your phone. It gives you reminders, however you like it. I like the hard copy. All it is is an encyclopedia about that thick of all the countries of the world, alphabetical order with some of their vital statistics and how you can pray for them. And so when your alarm goes off at 10.02, you stop, you open it up, to today's date, March 26th, and you pray for Bulgaria or whatever the country is that day. And if you did nothing else as a result of our weekend together, that would be something that God would use to change the world. I'd like to pray for you. Father, we, um, we thank you that the Lord Jesus um, had such great compassion on the multitudes. And we thank you that his answer was not the way most of us would answer uh, what the solution is, but that his solution was a divine one, that we need to beg you to send out workers into the harvest. Lord, I have seen, and maybe these folks have seen, how hard it is for that to happen. All of our good intentions, we don't keep praying. And even those who at one point say, I think maybe I should go, uh, so few of them end up going because it's hard to get out there. But we need you, Heavenly Father, to give us what is needed to do what you told us to do, to beg you for workers. And we do beg you, Lord, that you would thrust out workers into the harvest fields of the world, especially to those places where the 2.8 billion people still live in absolute darkness. I pray, Lord, that as... Pastor Rob has asked that you would give a tithe of this body of Christ, that in the years ahead, 10% of the body of Christ of this church, Calvary, would be thrust out into the nations, whether it's close or far away, and that through them and through their prayers, you would transform the world in our lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.